As a dad, I love it when the light bulb comes on with my kids with something that I'm trying to help them learn and understand. And I'm sure parents, you, you can resonate with that desire at any age. A number of years ago, I told the story that when um, Savannah was five years old, we, we felt like a light bulb kind of needed to come on inside of her mind and heart. And the reason was is that every time we went to the grocery store, we'd get all our stuff in the grocery cart, and then we had a problem because we would make our way through the gauntlet of desire. You know what I'm talking about? You push the cart in, and there's all of these trinkets, colorful candies, the, the most important nail clipper you could ever possess, super glue for all the broken things, duct tape, I mean, it's all right there. And so there was this perpetual difficulty of having to say, no, honey, no, honey, no, 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 we can't do that, no, 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 and just kind of get through. So Sarah was like, you know what, we need to help her understand the costliness of possessions. There was one particular toy that she wanted. I'm not sure if it was in the toy aisle or if it was in the gauntlet of desire, I'm not sure where, but I know what it was. It was a particular Polly Pocket toy. So Sarah told her that she could buy the Polly Pocket toy, but she had to work for it. And so she began uh, giving her various jobs around the house that she could do. And uh, th there were a number of them because we, we, don't, we don't pay minimum wage at our house. So I'm just <laughs> saying, food, clothing, and a little bit of money. And so she had to do a fair number of jobs. And after a few weeks, she had accumulated enough money for this very prized Polly Pocket possession. Sarah went to the store, bought it, brought it home, and presented it to her and said, here you go. Here's, here's the Polly Pocket toy that you wanted. And Savannah said, oh, thank you. And then Sarah said, and now I need all of your money. And Savannah said, all of it? Sarah said, all of it. So she went and opened up her little, little purse that she had and she poured all of her money into Sarah's hands. And Sarah said, thank you very much. Enjoy your toy. And then walked away. And um, the light bulb came on. But not to the extent that we thought it would. Because two weeks later, when Polly had lost a little of her pizzazz, if you know what I mean, <laughs> Savannah was unusually downcast and kind of mopey, and Sarah said, honey, what's, what's the matter? She looked at Polly, and she said, I miss my money. <laughs> <laughs> Do you resonate with that? Yeah, I know you do. You bought a car, you're sitting there thinking, man, I miss my money, bought something. The fact of the matter is when you're a five-year-old kid, you don't know not to say that, but that's part of humanity, is it not? That there's something that money does to us, something that gets into our soul, and something that possessions do, that we need to think about. This morning we're going to talk about the issue of money, and what I want you to understand is that talking about stewardship, stewardship is not all about money, but at the same time you need to know that money matters. You can think of it this way, that stewardship isn't all about money, but money is all about stewardship. We've been looking at this idea of stewardship. Week one we saw that God owns it all, he's the creator, we're made in his image, Week two, we learned that generosity means we need to kill the curl and stop curling our fingers around things. Week three, last week, we talked about what it means to redeem the time. And today, we're gonna specifically talk about currency, money. We have to talk about money. If, I, um, if I'm a good pastor, I have to talk to you about this subject because 
The Bible talks about money all the time. The other thing is this, that, that money and what we do with it is one of the most practical ways that we express what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Money, like, like time or place, is the thing or the place where our true passions and our true affections become clear. How you handle your money, how I handle my money, tells us a lot about where our true values lie. So what I wanna do today is help you see that, that money can be something that does a lot of good, and I want you to see that money is also something that can do a lot of bad. Think of it like a, like a large animal, like a really big dog or an elephant or an ox. If you train that animal well, it can do some amazing things, but if it gets out of the pen or gets sideways, some bad stuff can happen. And so what I want to talk today with you about is this issue of our currency, that money can be a currency of corruption, and then money can be a currency of Christ-likeness. And the question is, what is money for you? Does it create corruption? Does it facilitate corruption? Or does it create Christ-likeness? So first we're gonna look at this idea of the currency of corruption. Look at kind of the, the, the bad side. In 1 Timothy 6, there are some pretty important warnings about the dangers of money. Or maybe to put it this way, that, that money is the place where we can express our sinfulness and our self-centeredness very easily. Look at verses nine to 10. We'll come back to verses six and eight. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So when you think about this currency of corruption, there's two things I want you to notice. Number one is that money can be a trap. Verses nine through 10 provide a critical caution about the fact that if you think about it, money can be a gateway to really bad things. Granted, money can do a lot of good things, but money can be a, a facilitator or a lure as it relates to our sinful hearts. And this is why Paul gets down to this desire level so quickly. He identifies that the desire to be rich sets a person on a very dangerous path. Now, let me be clear. Paul is not saying that to be wealthy is to be sinful, nor is he saying that Maybe your ambition to grow your business or to, to see your salary increase. He's not saying that that is inherently wrong, nor is your attentiveness to your net worth, your desire to see your investments grow, or even enjoying the benefits of what money brings. These things are not fundamentally wrong. Rather, what Paul is talking about here is this desire that's underneath it, the matter of covetousness and the sinful pursuit of wealth due to greed and a self-centered heart. So money then can be a trap, a trap where corrupt desires are acted on or corrupt desires are even facilitated. Like you don't even really know how corrupt your heart is until money gets into the mix. Or you didn't know how things could be so awkward between your family members until the money issue came up. So money can be the means by which these wicked desires in our soul become evident. Look at what he says about money. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. The first thing we see here is that how you handle money can actually create situations where you're tempting yourself because you have money. 
If you have money, then there's things that you can buy that you shouldn't, things that you should, could do that you maybe shouldn't do, that, that money creates a temptation. You could do good with it, you could also do bad with it. The text also says not only do we fall into temptation, but also into a snare, meaning that, that money can create bondage. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't even need to explain this all that much. You, you feel right now that, Look, I was supposed to own the house, but the house owns me. I was supposed to own my credit card, but my credit card owns me. You can fall into all kinds of traps where your life is consumed by thinking about and dealing with money such that it just kind of takes over. Or your possessions, they feel like they own you. You ever felt like that? For whatever reason right now, we're in a season in our house where it feels like everything is breaking. The dishwasher went down, the Remember the, the car I talked about last week? I made the mistake of letting Sarah drive it, and she came home, and she said, that car, it's a great sermon illustration, but it's not safe. You've got to fix that thing. It's like, oh. So I got like three things on the list, et cetera, et cetera, and this weekend, like, I had all these things I had to do, these things I had to fix, and I was like frustrated. I mean, these things were owning me. You know what I'm saying? In fact, I was kind of walking around the house, and like, if one more thing gets broken, I didn't say this out loud, but man, it showed on my face. Like, if one more thing gets broken, I'm going to... I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something, but I'm just, I'm just frustrated. Like, nothing else break. I'm just saying it to my house and my car, and like, nothing can break for a little bit. I'm done with stuff breaking. I just had this, this sort of, it, it owned me for a few hours. The text also says that money can destroy you. Look what it says. There's some scary language in the Bible into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Whew. So don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that money has nothing to do with your soul. And for that matter, don't think that people who have a lot of money have, like they got great lives. Just think of how many rich and famous people have really messed up lives. Money can, can delude you. You can fall into all kinds of senseless and harmful desires, and just because you have money doesn't mean you're gonna be set for the rest of your life. I was doing some research on this and having a conversation with someone who was up this week for the NFL Combine, and we were talking about this challenge, particularly with NFL players. 16% of NFL players are bankrupt after three years when they retire, even though the average salary is $2 million. I, mean, I should tell you, that's just not this true in that arena. It's true in so many other areas. And then money can also create many other kinds of evils. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you feel the weight of this? You see, there are all kinds of other issues that, that money then opens the door toward. Think of issues like greed dishonesty, stinginess, over-indebtedness, even stealing. Money can create conflict in marriage. It can make you anxious. Money can make you feel secure, and you can trust in it, as we'll see later. It can make you proud. Money can create jealousy between people. It can cause a division between friends. It can create competition even between leaders and even ministries. John Stott says that the love of money can lead to marriages of convenience, perversions of justice, drug pushing, pornography, blackmail, the exploitation of the weak, the neglect of good causes, and the betrayal of friends. You've seen it all, haven't you? And all of it often has its roots in this gateway of money. 
It was all fine and good till we started talking about money. So listen, money is not just a stewardship issue. It is the potential to do great harm to your soul. It can be a currency of corruption. It can be a trap leading you to all kinds of sin issues. So money doesn't have to be bad, but it certainly can be bad. Money can be very dangerous. Same sort of conversation that I've had with my sons is I've taught them how to drive. With each of them, I sat them down in the front seat of the car and said, listen, you need to know that what we are in is a great tool for freedom, but statistically, if you're gonna really hurt somebody, hurt yourself, or potentially even kill someone, it's gonna happen in this thing. We're not playing around anymore. Like, like being distracted, goofing around with a car, like that's, someone can get killed. And I need you to understand that as we're giving you these keys. You need to know that money's the same way. It has the potential to be a trap. Some of you are in that trap today. You know what I'm talking about. And my hope is that you'll take some steps to begin to get free. Some of you may need just to acknowledge, like, I got a greedy heart. Secondly, money can not only be a trap, but money can be an idol. Go to 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17. This is the second text. It says this, as for the rich in this present age. Some of you are like, sweet. That didn't apply to me. So I'm just going to check my Twitter account right now and see how much money I got in my bank account. Grab my phone. No, 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 no. Listen, you know what's interesting? That 55% of millionaires don't think they're rich. Globally, it's estimated of the six billion people, there are six billion people, rather globally, who live on $13,000 a year. Nearly half of the world's population, 2.8 billion people, live on less than $2 a day. If your income last year was $40,000, you're in the richest 2% in the entire world. So, I think it's pretty safe to say that verse 17 applies to our church in a way that maybe we wouldn't have thought at first glance. So what does Paul say to the rich in this present age? He warns them, charge them not to be haughty. So the first reality underneath this idea of an idol is that money can become an idol that then creates pride. In a minute we'll see how it creates trust, but it can create pride. You know this to be true, don't you? That what you buy can bring this false belief that you're important. There's a status symbol, and so you, you buy it. You needed a car, but you wanted that one. You needed shoes, but you wanted those. You needed jeans, but they gotta be this kind. And the reason is, is because those, those, there's symbols connected to that. We have them at all ages, lunch boxes when our little, right? <laughs> little trinkets that wear around our, our, um, our wrists, the kind of home that you live in, the, how big your TV is in your house. The, the challenge is, is that those things can get inside of our heart. And that's not just a 21st century problem. That's been a problem since the very beginning. Listen to what God said to the people of Israel. He warned them, be careful when you have eaten and are full. 
and have built good houses and live in them. When your herds and flocks multiply, your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. So money and the things that we buy has the potential to make you feel powerful. So let's just say you go home this afternoon and you sit in the chair, the chair that you bought, like this is your chair, your favorite chair, your comfy chair, your relaxed chair, your chair, right? You sit down and you like your chair. There's nothing wrong with you liking your chair. So don't sit in your chair and feel guilty, like, oh, I feel guilty about my chair. I don't know if I should, I should just, I'll just stand, right, and watch... I'll just watch TV all there standing. No, just sit down and enjoy the chair. But don't sit in your chair and go, that's my chair. I bought me this chair so that my family can serve my chair and my king in the chair and drinks, you know, and you get this, get this thing going on inside your soul. That's when the chair becomes a problem. When you begin to think, I bought it, I earned it, I deserve it, I'm gonna sit in it, and I'm gonna be reminded that I'm somebody. Sit in the chair and be reminded God gave you this chair. Sit in the chair and think, thanks, thank you God for this chair. Thank you for the ability to make money, to buy a chair, what a gift. Lest you forget that God could put you flat on your back. And you have no more ability, you have no money, so possessions should be enjoyed. I mean, later on we'll, we'll see that, 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 that Paul even says this. God gives us everything good and those things are to be enjoyed. So I don't want to like gut your life from the enjoyment of a family vacation or the enjoyment of a, of a vehicle that the Lord has helped to provide or you sit down and you feel guilty that you're, you're, you're eating some type of nice meal. I'm not saying you ought to feel guilty over that, but you ought to be really warned if you look at that steak and go, I bought that steak. Like somehow it's a badge. Money can not only be a matter of pride, it can also be an issue of trust. Look at, again, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. So 1 Timothy 6.17 warns not only about the pride issue, but on the other side of the equation, it it causes us or can cause us to put our hope in our money. You know, don't you, that money makes you feel safe. It makes you feel secure. It makes you feel in control. Because when you have money, you have options. If I have a lot of money, then when something breaks, I have lots of ways to figure it out. I don't just have one Money creates options, it creates a level of safety. Money is a means of provision. It's a way to hedge against uncertainty. It's a way to protect oneself. And at one level, according to Proverbs chapter 10, verses four and five, you ought to save and you ought to plan. In fact, to not save and to not plan for the future is to be foolish. But you also need to know that there's a danger with money in that you can begin to trust in your money. You can put your hope in your money. You can hoard your money because you are not being a good steward, but rather because you have this subtle trust issue of, I'm not gonna trust God for my future, I'm gonna trust me, so I'm gonna save and save and save and save. And so in this way, people who spend too much have an idol, but people who save too much also have an idol. That's how sneaky money can be. 
Is how loaded all of this could possibly be? So let me ask you, when you think about your life, when you think about the issue of money, do you see the ways in which money can kind of be a gateway drug to something else? And where does this show up in your life? Does it show up in your spending? Does it show up in status symbols? Does it show up in your lack of planning? Does it show up in your over planning? Does it show up in your lack of generosity? Some of you, like, like this series is a really important moment for you to take a, kind of draw a line in the sand and say, you know what, this is a problem in my life and I need to do something about it. Please, please, don't make this just another message on money, another series on stewardship where you're like, yep, that's true, and then you do zero about it. The challenge for all of us to remember is that money can be a currency of corruption. Jesus said, what does a profit a man if he gained the whole world and yet lose his soul? The idea is that we should handle our money carefully and cautiously and have a sense of respect of what we're dealing with. One of my favorite tools that I have at my house is a portable table saw. It's a great tool. When you're doing a home improvement project, table saw means you don't have to buy the exact piece of wood. You can make your own pieces of wood at home. It's awesome. But I've also had way too many friends that have lost fingers using a table saw. For those of you who have no idea what a table saw is, it's a table with a saw. That's what it is. Okay? Table saw. That's why it's named. And what it has, it has this blade that comes up from the table, and you slide pieces of wood through it, and then it cuts it. It cuts it nice and straight and clean. And whenever I pull that thing out, I look at it, and I'm reminded of friends who've lost fingers, and I always use it slowly. I use it carefully. In some cases, when I'm moving quickly, I'll stop, and literally I'll count to three before I begin, because I know this thing is dangerous. It's, it's powerful. It can do some really great stuff, but it also can cut your finger off just like that. The challenge is is that many of you are not really realizing that money has a lot of power. It can get inside your soul, it can be the thing that, that feeds this greedy heart, or it could be something that you use in a really wonderful way if you'll have respect for what money can actually do. So money is first a currency of corruption, here's the second thing, money is also a currency for Christ likeness. So when we think of 1 Timothy 6, there are two strategies here. So if you're going to take some steps in this, here's the two things that I'd want you to do. I'd want you to think about contentment at a desire level and giving at an action level. You need to do both. Contentment is what you do on the inside, and giving is what you do not just on the outside, but it's what you actually take action steps with. So contentment, start with that. You know what contentment is? Contentment is simply trusting that I have enough. And it's trusting. It's like, I like, I have enough, and even though, like, commercials, your friends, what everyone else has would tell you, no, you don't, that you trust. No, I have enough. Look at verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So, what Paul says here is that godliness with contentment is great gain. Notice that the Bible is not against gain. The Bible's pro-gain, but the right kind of gain. In fact, verse 19 of chapter 6 says, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. We'll talk about this in a moment, but just a little teaser here. It means that Paul is saying when you give and when you understand the beauty of godliness and contentment is great gain, it means you grab hold of where true living really is. 
Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 6, 19 through 20. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where neither thieves do not, where thieves rather do not break in and steal. So the Bible is positive about gain, provided it's the right kind of gain. And this is the core issue related to contentment. The question is, what is really valuable to you? You see, every decision that you make regarding the use of money is determined by what you believe is really worthwhile. For instance, I'm not a fisherman. I, if I walk through a fishing section at a sporting goods store, like my heart is like, Pfft. who does that? Like, <laughs> that's like, no thank you. Like that's, but I go see a pair of running shoes and I'm like, oh, those are awesome. And some of you are like, that's crazy. Like, who you're running from, right? It's just like what's, like you don't understand it. And so what you love is what you see, right? What Paul is saying here is that money has the potential to do something, and the question is what do you want to do with your money? We use money for what we love. That's just true. It's just true. So your checkbook shows what you love. So Paul is saying here that if you love gain from God's perspective, then you will embrace the value of godliness and contentment. And this comes out of the gospel. Listen, in order to understand money, in order to understand contentment, you have to understand the gospel because everything you need to be right with God is found in Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus, what that means is that there's this, this place in your soul that you can't get to, and your sinfulness makes it where there's this, like, this empty cavity in your chest and that fills with guilt, and, and, and you're unable to solve it. And the Bible tells us that Jesus solves that problem by dying for us and us receiving him. And when that happens, God places you in Christ, and all his promises are yes to you in Jesus. You are then a child of his. You have immeasurable riches in the person and work of Christ in the heavenly places. It means that Jesus is now your ultimate sufficiency. And the gain of being in Christ and the gain of Christ-likeness is therefore incalculable. And the effect then is transformational. You see, if I have Christ and if my identity is in him, then I don't need a status symbol to make me somebody. I am somebody in Christ. If all God's promises to me are yes, then the place in my soul that money and possessions would have occupied is already occupied by the person and work of Christ. That's why godliness creates contentment. This is how Paul talked about it in Philippians chapter four. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. For some of you, the greatest expression that you could take to confirm and let your heart soar in terms of your affections for Christ is to say, I have enough in him and as you'll see in a minute, therefore I'm gonna give. I'm sufficient in you, I trust you, and as a result, I can give. So, what Paul is saying is that contentment here is connected to godliness, but additionally he says that 
contentment just makes sense. Look at what he says in verse seven. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. So this is just, this is just a logical argument. You, you were born with nothing, you die with nothing. And then what's crazy is that from birth to death, we're in this relentless pursuit of pursuing stuff that doesn't go with us. I mean, you remember the last time you moved? How was that experience? Did you not think while you're moving box after box after box after box in, why do we have so much junk? Or just stand in your closet and look at what you have and how many of the things that you have you don't wear anymore or use. Or just go into your storage locker or into your basement and just look at it through that lens about all that stuff and just realize that when you die, like your kid's gotta deal with your junk, right? And you're not taking it with you. So the question that we need to wrestle with is, do I really need this? Can I really afford it? Am I buying this because of some other maybe not so good reason? How much is enough? Am I balanced in how I use my money? See, I want you to ask yourself some questions about these things because a Polly Pocket toy is not the only thing that loses its pizzazz. And we go after things. Some things for the right reason and some for the wrong reason. Contentment can lead to Christ-likeness. So contentment. Here's the second thing. When we think of the currency of Christ-likeness, this has to translate into giving. Verse 8. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And then jump over to verse 17 and 18. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Verse 18, here it is. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. It's like four different ways that Paul is saying the same thing, that look, if you're rich, you need to do something. In other words, listen to me carefully. The intention of generosity and the heart of contentment is not enough. You have to take specific action steps. It's not just enough for you to walk away from this message going, yeah, I need to be content, and then not do anything about it. It's not enough just to feel like, oh yeah, I really feel generous. If you don't do anything, you're not generous. If you just feel generous, it's not true generosity. In fact, what giving is, is giving is a strategy that wages war on pride, self-sufficiency, and greed. So if you felt convicted at all about the currency of corruption the first half of this sermon, then you have to take a step in the direction regarding the second point. So let me just say this, that if you have a problem with giving, I just want to encourage you, you need to start And I don't say that because I want something from you. I really, truly want something for you, whether it's a monthly basis or every other week or every week, whether it's to this church or some other worthy cause. Brother, sister, you need to give. It's the best strategy to to slay the dragon of your own greed. And if you would say to me, I don't need to give to slay that dragon, I would say, you don't know the dragon you're dealing with. And don't wait until it's easy. Because if you do, you'll never start. The two best pieces of advice I received when we were a young married couple was this. Number one, if you have two incomes, live on one. And that way when a baby comes, you're not completely tripped out 
Second one is start giving and start early. And so if you're a teenager, you're a college student, single adult, you're new in your career, just let me tell you, it's not gonna be easier when you start making more money. In some respect, it's harder, because the number's bigger. If you get into a discipline of giving now, it's a really helpful spiritual enterprise, and it is the best way to sever the root of covetousness. So here's, a, here's an assignment. I'm gonna press in. It's tax season. Take a few minutes when your taxes are done. If you itemize your deductions, then look at your charitable contributions for 2016. Take that number and divide it by your annual salary and then multiply it by 100. So charitable contributions divided by your salary times 100, that'll give you a percentage, and just see what that percentage is. And then ask yourself, am I okay with that percentage? See how close it is. Where is it at as it relates to 10%? Whether or not you think 10% is the standard or whatnot, just like, like look at that and just say to yourself, am I comfortable that we're giving 1% away? And you may say, well, I, don't, I, don't, I give and I don't have receipts. Okay, so then add a couple hundred just for, let's just be safe and, and see if it, what that percentage is in terms of that giving. And then perhaps maybe you would set a goal and say, we want to get that up two or 3%, not just because it's the right thing to do, which it is, but also it's because if you don't do that over time, you will not slay the issue of covetousness in your soul. You're taking out the, the, the discipline that has the most likely opportunity to help you deal with greed and self-centeredness in your soul. Or maybe here's another way to think about it. Take your monthly rent or your monthly mortgage, multiply it times 12, and then compare your net living expenses just for your rent or mortgage with how much you gave last year, and look at that and see what you think about that. And what does it mean when you look at those numbers? Now, why would I suggest to do this? Here's why. Again, not because of what I want from you, but instead what I want for you. Verse 19 tells us something really important. It says, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future, here's the key, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, you don't live if you don't give. You don't. You don't live if you aren't generous. You, you have an experience that it's, it is, it's better to give than to receive. The idea is that when you give your money away, you are making a protest against the inclination of your self-centered heart. You are saying, I know I'm self-centered, and watch this, boom, and you give. You say to the flesh, the world, and the devil, you don't own me. In fact, you don't own me so much, watch this as I give money away. When you give money, when you give your time, when you give anything that you're generous with, you are severing the destructive love of self. You are hitting at the insidious heart of pride. You are pushing away from the relentless trust that can get inside your soul where you can begin to trust in yourself. So you don't give as an obligatory act. No, you give because it's war and as a statement of freedom. Giving celebrates that all my sins have been paid for by Christ. Giving celebrates that Jesus is everything I need. Giving says, I'm banking my life on the promises of God, not the amount of my checkbook. Giving celebrates that this world is not what I love, that my identity is found in Jesus, and that my trust is in God. And so therefore, watch this, soul. Boom, I'm giving something away. 
Giving joyfully declares that you have not really lived unless you've lived through Christ. It says to your flesh and the world and the devil, you don't own me. And by giving away what you possess, you give passionate evidence that you are possessed by another, namely Jesus. So friends, listen, giving is a regular, disciplined, triumphant way of saying when it comes to the gospel, I'm all in. And so my question to you would simply be this, what, what, what's, what's stopping you? I mean, money's powerful, you know that, right? Money can be missed, money can be dangerous, but it doesn't have to be. Instead, money can be the currency where Christ-likeness is created in us as we learn to be content and as we learn to give. That money can actually be the means by which a level of Christ-likeness is created inside of us. So why not let go of some money for something even better? Money then becomes the currency of Christ-likeness in you. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be all in. Give us grace today to repent from elements of greediness in our hearts. It's there. We all know it's there at various levels. Forgive us for ways that our lives have become so focused on what we own. And now help us to respond to you. Help us to Take steps, even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.